Hello and welcome to this podcast, one of a series celebrating the life and works of Benjamin Britten in his centenary year. This is the second part of a two-part interview with filmmaker and Britten expert John Bridcutt. In the first part, we spoke about John's fascination with Britten and his companion to his life and works, Essential Britten. In this part, we move on to John's other book about the composer, Britten's Children. Despite the importance to Britten of adolescent boys throughout his life, the subject had been little studied before John made a documentary about it around a decade ago. John puts this neglect down to the worry that something nasty might emerge from a too thorough investigation. So I began by asking him if this was a worry he shared when embarking on the project. Yes, absolutely. I didn't know quite which way it was going to go. Humphrey Carpenter had done some work on this subject for his biography, in the, which was published in the early 90s. And he'd spoken to a number of the boys who'd been friends of Britain. But I was working on television as opposed to writing a book at that stage. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting to meet some of these characters and talk to them about it. So I was encouraged by Colin Matthews as the chairman of the Britain estate to embark on this. And he, indeed, he ensured that I had full access to the resources of the library, including all the correspondence and so on, which was a huge advantage. And in years gone by, there'd been a lot of sensitivity of this subject, and there were parts of the library that had become sort of out of bounds, except to very, very expert and uh, trusted researchers. And I'm sure I wouldn't have been one of those in the days of yore. But in this case, Colin Matthews was extremely helpful in saying, no, let's, let's um, look at this properly. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I'd read Humphrey Carpenter's book long before and was aware that it's a very edgy subject. But I found it a really interesting subject to tackle because I was conscious then, this was 10 years ago now, that there was a lot of, hysteria is too strong a word, but a lot of excitement about the whole business of relationships between adult men and boys. And there have been cases of people talking about sexual abuse and so on. And and I felt that this was a subject that was seen through a very limited prism. And what seemed to be the case to me, and this was confirmed as my researches went on, was that Britain was a very important person in the lives of these boys at the time. It wasn't something that they were alarmed about. Perhaps some of their family may have been, some of Britain's friends may have been. But there is such a thing as a close relationship of a non-invasive kind of any sort between a young teenager, an adolescent boy, and the first adult outside his own family that he gains the trust of. And this can sometimes be a schoolmaster. And, you know, we, many of us know in our own experience how important that relationship is, because you're suddenly taken, you're accepted as a person in your own right, whose opinions are listened to, even though they may be rather juvenile in their conclusions, but they're accepted for what they are, instead of being dismissed by, by your parents or by um, other relatives who think, oh, you know, let him grow up sort of thing. So 
What struck me was that there are gradations in these relationships, which it was important to explore instead of just having a knee-jerk reaction and feeling that a close relationship of this kind was automatically something suspicious and inviting censure. I spoke to, I suppose, 15 or 16 of these friends of Britain, and that's most of them, of the particular friends that he'd had. And I was struck by the, the real enjoyment these now middle-aged or elderly men had in recalling the memory. They were sometimes quite amused by realising how strange and odd it seemed that they had this close friendship with, with Britain. And I'm sure that in today's climate, he would not have been able to sustain these friendships in the same way. There would be tabloid hysteria for a start, wouldn't there? There would. I think it would have. There would have been gossip. I mean, there was gossip at the time, but of course, it was a slightly more respectful period, and people didn't leap into print in the way they do now. There, there was gossip, and in the light of that, it's quite interesting that that some parents were quite content to let Britain befriend these boys and indeed rather encouraged it in some ways. And you think, gosh, that's perhaps a bit unwise. But these men were so delighted in recalling this period that it seemed to me they had no, there were no sort of skeletons in the cupboard. There were moments of edge in the relationship, which, you know, you know that it would cause a problem if that became public now. Um, after all, David Hemmings talks about sharing a bed with Britain. And that's, you know, of course, quite shocking. Um, there's, there's a scene that sticks in my mind where I think he's in twin beds and he says to, I think it's an American boy, would you mind awfully if I were to come over and give you a, a hug and a kiss goodnight? And it's, it's a, it's, it is a sort of bizarre scene. There, there is a sort of frisson of, of, of something slightly uncomfortable. And yet it also seems to belong to an, another age where where obviously things were, were done very differently or could be done very differently. You're right, that frisson is there. To some extent it's a different age, but this is a, you know, it's a dangerous argument to think that somehow things were allowed then that, that wouldn't be allowed now. I think the thing is, what, what struck me was that Britain had quite difficult personal relations in many ways. I mean, he was a man who had the capacity to be very charming. But he also was impatient and very demanding, and he would cut people dead. Um, so, some people who he'd worked with very closely would be cast into sort of outer darkness when he felt that they'd outlived their usefulness to him, or they were being too demanding. And this was, I think, often the problem, that they assumed that they'd, they'd become his, his bosom pals, and actually they'd been useful to him. And they were mistaking that for very close friendship. And so then he found other people that he needed to work with because he was always moving forward in his career. And these people were perhaps static. And he realised that he needed better librettists or he needed better producers to work with. And so he had these difficult personal relations and he handled this very often poorly. I mean, he would either not communicate with them at all or he'd get someone else to send them a message that they were not welcome and so on. And yet with the children, mostly it was the case that he was very 
attentive and he brought out it brought out the best in him he was considerate he put himself in their shoes and thought you know what is what are they going through as they're facing their exams or as they're playing the next cricket match that sort of thing that was bringing out the best in britain's own character and that's i think an important element in in trying to evaluate these relationships it's not like some of the other cases we've read of inappropriate in this awful term inappropriate relationships where you know it's being done entirely out of selfishness of the of the adult this is not the case with britain of course i think with any friendship there's a selfish element because a friendship needs it needs to be to work for both sides for it to have any future but he was often acting very altruistically and with the boy's well-being in the forefront of his mind and so you know that's a very important piece of evidence i think and beyond this being an interesting question in its own right about the personality of a major composer you also explore its influence on the music the character of the music the um the forces for which it's scored and indeed in the case of some of the operas the overt or the covert themes of the music such as um you know death in venice for example I think it's a mistake to think that all the music is governed by his thoughts about relationships and, and and any sort of sexual element. Humphrey Carpenter I think makes that mistake and he he tries to to find these elements in in the most unlikely pieces of orchestral music for instance. But it's you cannot deny that it's there for some of them. It's clearly a focus of a lot of the operas. His operas I mean he used to resent the fact that people talked talked about his operas as being about the loss of innocence but then there was one occasion when he did admit he said well yes i suppose looking at them it is about the loss of innocence and he knew so he knew that but at the same time it's about people who are on the outside you know who who are not part of the crowd and i think that's where he felt he he never felt he was part of the crowd and he was always a bit of an outsider whether through being a pacifist whether through being a homosexual whether through just simply being a musician and being a composer after all people's you know said to him when he was a boy what do you want to be and he said i want to be a composer and he said yes but what else which was actually not an unreasonable question in the time there weren't many professional composers and so i think he was he was driven by that by that feeling of outsiderness and this sometimes expressed itself in the sort of vulnerabilities of boys and of children you know the little sweep the boy who is who is the sweep is the sort of the victim you know he's he's doing a a terrible job and he is identified as being someone who excites the the pity and sympathy of these well-to-do children in the house um he's come to sweep the chimney off it's true of the apprentice in peter grimes it's true of the dead boy in curly river these are important elements that britain found he could dig deep into his own psyche and into his own experience to understand what it was like for these boys and for the adults who related to them i mean the turn of the screw is a classic case the turn of the screw i think is perhaps one of his most fascinating pieces and the key to this business of what his operas are about and is is much more than simply the loss of innocence it's more complicated and it's more potentially complicit than that isn't it 
That's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, this is a, an area of this subject that people nowadays are incredibly sensitive about and resistant to. It happened in a court case the other day when a judge spoke about a young girl, underage girl, as having been provocative and um, provoked sexual interest from an adult. And he was excoriated for saying this, and including, you know, the, even the Prime Minister spoke out about it. And, and actually, I don't know the merits of that particular case, but to my mind, it's perfectly possible for children who are on the threshold of puberty, of, of sexual maturity, to be complicit to some extent in their relations with adults. They can even become manipulative. I mean, it's, it's not to say that adults shouldn't be able to deal with that and control themselves in that situation, but it is a factor. And I think Britain knew that. And in the turn of the screw, you see the example of this young boy of 12, whatever he is, 13, who is undoubtedly complicit in that he is aware of Peter Quint's interest in him and he's responding to it. He is both innocent and complicit. And that's an interesting paradox. It's the reason why Britain chose David Hemmings to sing the role, because David Hemmings didn't have a particularly good voice, but he had the knowingness that Britain felt was absolutely right for the part. And I think he thought, we'll get the voice working. But this young boy has got a sort of cheeky, uh, mischievous glint in his eye that was about, it, it was, he was far more knowing than he should have been for his years. And that's what Colin Graham, the producer, said about David Hemmings. And it's what makes Miles work in the, in the opera. If you get him played by a boy who is completely, completely sort of pallid, it doesn't work so well. The, the key to the opera is the aria Marlowe, when Miles sings about the different meanings, all of them slightly sexually elusive, of the Latin word Marlowe. And it's, it comes out of a, almost out of a clear blue sky as he sings this, and the music is so suggestive and um, sinister. And his governess can hear this in the music and is sort of alarmed by it and actually thrilled as well because she can see this is the, the, the first signs of a young adult um, who is in her charge. Britain knew exactly what he was doing when he was writing this, this music, which is so uh, sinister. And you just know that as he's singing these apparently innocent words, Miles is completely aware of the significance of them. Some of the, the most interesting pages in the book, John, I thought were where you interviewed the, I think, 83-year-old Wolf Scherchen, who was really Britain's first great love, I suppose you would say. And he hadn't spoken about this until you found him and, um, and persuaded him to talk. Can you say something about, about his um, memories of Britain? Well, Wolf Scherchen was, um, was indeed Britain's, perhaps his first flame. I mean, he was only 13 when Britain first met him uh, in 1934. And so he was 17 or 18 when they, that was only a, a sort of brief encounter, as it were, for, for a couple of days in, in Italy. But he met him again when he was just coming up to 18. They were seven years apart. 
And there was clearly a very intense relationship, quite what it amounted to, we, we don't know. But it was very interesting to meet this man who went on after this relationship with Britain, which lasted about 18 months. Fairly shortly after that, he, he then went into the war and he, as a German who had left Germany and, and he fought for the British forces. And in so doing, as with all German volunteers for the British armed forces, he had to change his name as a security measure to avoid you know, reprisals if he was captured. And he changed his name, changed his identity completely and got married in the middle of the war and has got a, a host of children and grandchildren to his name. And so he had disappeared, in effect. He was completely unknown, except to the few friends of Britain from the pre-war days. Britain never mentioned him, peers never mentioned him, although peers knew about him. And it was only when Britain died and the biographers started to look through the, the papers that they found these letters from Wolfschirchen. And um, the story started to come out. Donald Mitchell who was editing Britain's letters, did meet him and interviewed him. And there is a, a transcript of that interview. But I, I, I'd never met him, I'd never seen him on television, I'd never heard his voice or anything. And so it was quite a business of tracking him down because he by then emigrated to Australia. I was lucky enough eventually to track him down, find him living near Brisbane. And he was fascinating because he... he clearly was intrigued to be asked to talk about this period. And he almost viewed his young self as somebody else. And he was sort of amazed to look back at this character who happened to have his own name, who had lived a completely different life as, a, you know, a teenager. So he, he actually, he's, he rejoiced in the association and memory and yet was, at moments, was awkward about it because it was something that was clearly open to what he might have regarded as misinterpretation. And I suppose when you began your interview with someone like, like him, you didn't know what was going to come out, presumably. You know, all sorts of terrible memories might have been uh, unlocked. Not at all. All, the, all that I knew was what was in the letters, which was quite a lot. Um, the letters were very explicit on both sides. And I, you know, I went with that knowledge but nothing else, and I didn't know what he was going to say. I think he was very frank with me, but I did say to him, I said, you know, I'd like you to tell me the truth. I said, it doesn't have to be the whole truth, but I don't want you to tell me things that are wrong. And um, that's the way the interview was conducted. I think he felt a really a real fondness for Britain now, looking back, and, and a, a real sense of privilege to have known him at this formative time in Britain's life. I mean, this was 1938-39. It was before Peter Grimes. He'd written the uh, Frank Bridge Variations, but not many other of his well-known pieces. So he was, he was a fledgling composer. And, you know, he knew him and he said, you know, he, whist he could wolf whistle. I mean, he, he could whistle with two fingers in his mouth in a way that you see very few people doing this but he said it was really embarrassing this this composer who i thought was you know quite uh, eminent because he 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 was sought after by the bbc and so on and he would whistle for a taxi in the street <laughs> and um 
Wolf was was really excited in that memory. But I think I think there were bits of the going back over the letters that he'd written and that Britain had written to him. I think he found them a little bit more florid than perhaps he'd remembered because of course he hadn't seen them. He, it's not as though he'd got copies of them. He had given the letters that Britain written to him to the archive many, many years before. I mean, after Britain's death, I think. But probably when he emigrated to Australia, he decided to dispose of them. But, you know, you don't go back over letters anyway um, in your cupboards. You know, they just sit there if you're lucky enough to have kept them. And I think he was a bit sort of uh, surprised at the, at the intensity of the relationship as they revealed. You mentioned, John, there were 15 or 16 infatuations, if that's, if that's the best word to apply to, to these relationships. How did they tend to come to an end? Did Britain outgrow the boys? Did the boys outgrow Britain? It's hard to be precise about that. I mean, the, 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 the main evidence for this is perhaps the strongest relationship he had, which was with Roger Duncan, the son of his librettist, Ronald Duncan, who he had amazingly persuaded, he persuaded Ronald Duncan to share his son with him. And the Duncans had a rather dysfunctional marriage, let's put it like that. And so it was a difficult home life that Roger Duncan had. And he said to Ronald, you know, I'd like to share him with you. And this man agreed. They shared Roger during the holidays from school. He spent two weeks with Ben and two weeks with his father, with his parents. This lasted for about six or seven years. And then as he came to the end of his school days, there's a letter in which Britain is writing to E.M. Forster about him and said Roger's become very glossy at Harrow. And um, he obviously found him too grown up and too sophisticated, in inverted commas. There was an occasion which Roger's sister Bryony told me about when Britain turns up to spend some time with Roger when he's presumably now an, a sort of older teenager, bringing another boy with him, a young friend, which Roger found incredibly hurtful. And I asked Roger about that, and he, he clearly found it painful even to think about now. And I think this was Britain indicating to him, your time is through, you know. He didn't cut him off, and they continued to correspond intermittently for the rest of Britain's life. But it was downgraded. And the other people who told me, yes, you know, he used to write once a fortnight, something like that, amazingly often. And then it was downgraded and then I'd just get birthdays and Christmas cards and, and gradually it would be phased out. He was more careful about how he severed the relationships. David Hemmings talks about his voice breaking and you know it was one of those cases where his voice just went like that in the middle of a performance and Britain sort of had to stop the performance, bring the curtain down as they changed him for a substitute because he suddenly croaked. And he, he says to you, he knew at that point it was over. He does. I, I'm not sure how exactly accurate that is. It may be a little... I think that's the impression that he's been left with. There is a letter in the archive after this breakdown of his voice, some years after, where he, Britain is making suggestions about his future, about which school to go to, and which, um, what's best for him as both singer and actor. And that shows that there was some contact. But nonetheless, David Hemmings felt, I mean, he'd been in such a privileged position where he was the apple of Britain's eye. And suddenly he is 
just another ex-performer. And he felt that very keenly. And during most of his adult life, Britain was in a relationship with, with Peter Pears. So how did um, Britain's infatuations affect the dynamic of their relationship? Well, it was something that Pears always accepted and knew was there for keeps. There's one letter fairly early on where Piers is trying to cheer Britain up and he says, think of all the good things there are in the world. And he talks about the sea and children. And then he says, separately from children, he says, boys. And that is very interesting that he makes that distinction. And then he says, and you and me. So he accepted the boys were part of the same thing as his intense relationship with the sea, swimming in it five times a day, children and boys and you and me. On the other hand, these relationships with the boys, when the boys came to stay, tended to be when Piers was not around. And there are a few occasions where Piers is there. David Hemmings talks about Peter Piers being jealous of him and um, he didn't really, they obviously didn't really get on. But normally, Piers was away a lot, performing. I mean, he had his own career to run, and he was travelling around Europe, he was travelling around the British Isles, singing. And there were years in the in the late 50s and early 60s where he would only be at Aldborough for a few days a year, literally. They had a, a flat in London, and so Britain would sometimes go up to London and they'd meet there. But nonetheless, there were long periods of the year which suited Britain well, because it meant that he was there in Aldborough composing, and was, there was no distractions of sort of domestic life. But nonetheless, Britain used those times to invite his boyfriends to come and stay. And it clearly gave him, it gave him a sort of break from the composing routine, and he would take them off to do brass rubbings or, or go bird watching, or to talk, look at architecture of the East Anglian churches, that sort of thing. It was refreshing for Britain. But it was clearly, he took advantage of the fact that Piers wasn't there. And so there wasn't the same sense of competition that there would have otherwise been. And you talked earlier about rumours and Britain's interest in boys being known. But there's only one recorded example of the rumours going right back to Britain himself and Britain reacting. And that was when... Charles McCarris was preparing for the premiere of, of Noyes Flood. What happened then? It was obviously a very painful experience for Charles McCarris because he told me very ruefully um, right at the end of his life about, about this experience, which was that he had been joking. I mean, this was in the late 50s, uh, mid to late 50s, when Noyes Flood was being prepared. Charles McCarris was conducting it. And they'd been joking about how this was absolute paradise for Ben because there were all these boys in the performance, um, masses of children, of course, in Noah's Flood, and this was paradise for Ben. Now, this apparently got to, uh, well, it was overheard by John Cranko, who was the um, homosexual choreographer, who split on McCarris and went and told Britain about this. And so McCarris was summoned for an interview in which Piers and Britain were sitting there and, and Britain was outraged and white with fury and expressed, well, expressed in real indignation that, that anybody could think 
that he had done had done anything untoward with these children and that this was in his mind and so on. And Piers said to Macarius that, you know, you've quite spoiled this opera now for, for Ben. He was mortified, Macarius, because he said he, you know, he so revered Britain and admired him more than any other musician alive. And he felt that, you know, the relationship with Britain was destroyed. And although there were occasions in the future where they did work, but it was nonetheless, it was the end of a, of a beautiful friendship. It's quite interesting that, that Macarius actually, when I spoke to him, conflated the homosexuality with the interest in boys as though they were one and the same thing. I suspect that was typical of, of men of his generation. And now, of course, nowadays, people will be very, key, very careful to make a distinction because I suppose that as homosexuality has become more acceptable, paedophilia has quite the reverse, has, has become much less acceptable. So people are very careful to make the distinction. But it wasn't the case with, with Macarius. And I think he was sort of, he conflated the two and, and, and it became even more confusing than it otherwise would have been. So finally, John, do you think the ultimate answer to the question of whether his interest was largely paternalistic, you talked about, you know, taking interest in education and the welfare of the boys, or erotic is in fact, it was, it was both and, and, that, and it, sort of, it sort of varied in its balance, but he did both have those sort of paternal feelings, but also a, a sort of erotic interest at the same time. When you say erotic, it's hard to know quite what that amounts to, because I think for a lot of people, they have a public life and a private life but also have a secret life. And that's what is going on in their own minds, which no one else is privy to or need be privy to. And we have no way of knowing what was going on in Britain's mind. If you have things that you don't want to put into your private life as opposed to, you know, as opposed to your secret life, you're unlikely to then go and write them down anywhere. But my view is that you cannot condemn people for what they think. I think it's a fundamental human right to have freedom of thought. Freedom of speech is important, but it's always limited. Freedom of action is important, but it's always limited. Freedom of thought should never be limited. And that applies whether you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about sex or whatever. What counts is what he did with his thoughts. It, it may well be, as Michael Barclay said, it may well be, and Michael Barclay was his godson after all and knew him as a boy, it may well be that he wanted to get into the trousers of these boys. We don't know, and it doesn't matter. What matters is whether he behaved properly with them. The evidence, so far as I've been able to investigate, is that he did, even though some of the behaviour by today's standards would perhaps raise some eyebrows, but it would not be... You know, there, there is nothing criminal about it. John Bridcat. You can find out more about Britain's children and all of Faber's Britain publishing by visiting the website at faber.co.uk. There are many more Britain podcasts to explore there, covering a variety of aspects of his life and works. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.